CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for being with us for uh, today's special edition of Rewind. I woke up Saturday morning, as did a great many people, to the news that George Herbert Walker Bush, the 41st president of the United States, had uh, died. Uh, he'd been uh, in failing health for some time, and yet he still managed to get out and about quite a bit. The last time I think we really saw him publicly was actually at Barbara Bush's, um, his wife of 73 years, at her funeral. But the reason I thought about it, um, among other things, is that there was really a very special relationship between George H.W. Bush and, and people, many people here in Georgia who knew him well. Georgia had um, an important place in his heart. He and Barbara Bush had their honeymoon at Sea Island after they got married. He considered Georgia to be an important state as he ran for president, both in 88 and 92. And so I've gathered here a number of people who have known President Bush over the years and who have stories to share about him. In the studio, uh, Rusty Paul, now the mayor of Sandy Springs, uh, but a former uh, – I'm trying to get the right word. I was in the sub-cabinet. Sub-cabinet when uh, you worked with Jack Kemp at Housing and Urban Development, and so you had a relationship with President Bush 41 through that. Eric Tannenblatt, your first job in politics coming in 1987, Seven. probably, right. was working as a staff member for uh, the campaign. Right here in, in Georgia. And then I went and up to Washington and served in his administration. And in the years since then, your relationship with the family has continued to grow so that you've uh, gotten to know all of them, including, of course, George W. and uh, Jeb and the rest of the family, so we're glad you're here. And Heath Garrett, longtime Republican strategist, you know how significant George H.W. Bush was to the state of Georgia over the years. Just, just a tremendous friend and, and asset and uh, worked with him via Johnny Isaacson. And then two of my partners helped do a lot of the media for George Herbert Walker Bush and then George W. Bush. Um, and Johnny Isaacson is going to join us about halfway through the show. He's uh, on his way. He's gone back to Washington a little bit early. He's got some meetings, but they are going to have him on the phone with us at about 2.30. So, all right, let's, let's start. I, if you don't mind, I want to start. I did a long conversation with John Meacham, the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning biographer, uh, when he published his book um, about President Bush back two years ago. And one of the most interesting things, and I want to get you all to respond to it, I, I asked him at the very beginning of the interview, I said, John, why would you spend all this time working on a biography about George Bush, the older, uh, when many people think he was sort of an uninspiring character, didn't have a lot of charisma, wonder what he accomplished as president? And Meacham said to me, well, you know, that's the way I thought about him for a while, too. And then he went on and said this. I found the more time I spent around him, I found a quiet, persistent charisma. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's funny. Early on, I was uh, talking to one of your uh, colleagues in public broadcasting, and they said, um, you know, I've heard you say that George Bush is charismatic, and I've asked around the office, and no one agrees. <laughs> uh, and I said, well, have they ever met him? And to his credit, he said, no, um, it's just a different kind of uh, it's a different kind of charisma. It's not John Kennedy. It's not Ronald Reagan. Certainly but, not Bill Clinton. And it's not, oh, my <laughs> Lord, no. Um, so I, I understand the skepticism about this. Uh, but in a way, my journey was going from wondering why one would want to read about him to wanting to write about him and feeling really as though I don't think you can under I know you can't understand modern modern American politics without understanding this man. John Meacham talking about Bush 41. And by the way, uh, John Meacham will now be eulogizing 
uh, Bush at um, funeral services later this week. So what did you think when you heard that, uh, Rusty and Eric especially? Well, I, I, I agree with him. Uh, in, in a lot of ways, I spent more time with him after he was president than I did while he was there. I mean, I worked for him in the administration, but when I was party chairman, he came to Georgia several times and I had an opportunity just to be with him one-on-one or in small groups. Uh, he was one of the most courteous human beings that I've ever dealt with, and, and a very the, the word gentle has been used a lot. I've seen him when he wasn't gentle. Uh, he had the, he could be a little fiery uh, when when the when the situation called for it. But uh, the quiet uh, charisma, I, I would agree with. Yeah, humility comes to mind too. Um, you know, he was someone. I think it was the way he was raised that uh, y- you know you, you do what you think is the right thing to do. You don't do it for the credit that that you're going to get. And uh, I think he was a consequential leader. I think since, uh, you know, the last 72 hours of people have been talking about him, you're, you're really starting to uh, really see the gravity of how impactful and influential and consequential, not just here in the United States, but around the world. Yeah, um, Heath, uh, I spent a lot of time covering him over the years. I covered him starting in 87 when mm-hmm. he was first running for office. And then uh, when he won, I spent a lot of time covering him at the White House and then covered the reelection campaign. Uh, he remains, in my mind, absolutely the kindest political leader I've ever dealt with, the most solicitous in the best sense of the word, uh, respectful, just a genuinely lovely human being to interact with. Well, everybody. And I was a reporter for goodness right. sake. And, you, <laughs> and he made you feel that way. I mean, you know, we, we talk about in politics, you can't fake sincerity. And he, he just was that person, and he had been his entire life, right? I mean, there's a great book about Theodore Roosevelt called A Life. And I've often thought there's not many other people you could write a book about. George H.W. Bush is someone the, – the book should be called A Life because very few people that the world has ever known lived as robust of a life as he did and combined it with the humility of a true gentleman in every situation, no matter how dire, no matter how consequential – and I also like what John Meacham said, that, that I think he may be the most quant- consequential one-term president we've ever had. Uh, no disrespect, our, our, our fellow from, from – but it's because of the history and the consequences of what happened while he was president. But what's interesting is he was that person from anything you read about him when he was in the military all the way until 94 years old. So go ahead, Eric. No, I was just going to say he, he, he also inspired so many people. I mean, everyone he touched – uh, you know, there's lots of stories that people have, but uh, I think that if if you had any not not just personal association, but just watching him and the way he he led his life, the way uh, he treated his family, the priorities he had, he was a real role model. And as as we mentioned earlier, I my first job right out of college was working on his campaign, and when he got elected president, for me, he sort of is the standard, the gold standard. He's the role model. So now every one I watch that has succeeded him, uh, I, I sort of compare them to, to him because that, that's, that was the bar for me. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I didn't support him in 88, but uh, ended up working for him. Uh, and that says You a were lot. in the camp. Yeah, I was in the camp campaign in those days yeah. and part of his cabinet. And, and one, of the, one of the true marks of a very successful politician is to take those folks who weren't necessarily your friends and bring them to, into you. And he was very good at that. He, uh, he didn't hold those kinds of long-term grudges that many of us in politics, we never forget those who've opposed us at some point or other. Not that I was very consequential in, in that process, but, uh, you know, it was uh, – that tells you a lot about who he was. And the fact that – the relate, look at the relationship that he had with Bill Clinton after the election. He was able to put those kinds of things behind him and then work toward the greater good, which is something I wish we did more of in today's politics. So that 88 campaign – uh, he was one of there were like eight Republicans in the very earliest stages of that campaign. Your guy, uh, Jack Kemp, Bob Dole was in uh, uh, Pete the DuPont. mix. 
Pete, who I had forgotten yeah. about. Pat Robertson. DuPont yeah. and Pat Robertson, of course. Yes. What was the campaign in Georgia like back then, and, and what were the dynamics of what you were trying to accomplish? Well, there were two phases. The first phase, and, and Rusty knows this well, too, was electing the delegates to go to the national convention. And so you had uh, the people that were more of the establishment Republicans that were but you know, supporting candidates like George Bush and Bob Dole and Jack Kemp. Uh, and then you had uh, Pat Robertson, who brought in uh, a new group of people into the party, uh, which have now been fully assimilated and are part of the modern-day uh, Republican Party. So the first phase of the campaign was really focused on uh, the, the delegate selection process leading up to Super Tuesday, which was the big primary. And then after uh, the Super Tuesday primary, uh, then the focus shifted to the general election. And uh, Georgia was a, um, you know, Republican state and has been a Republican state. But, um, you know, George Bush carried the state. Yeah. yeah. But it was very contentious. We had a convention <laughs> in, in Albany <laughs> that went for two days that we never got done. I mean, the most of the in the way things traditionally work with those of us who are involved in politics, we accept defeat and we go then because we're all on the same team. We put our candidates aside, and then we focus on the person who won. In this case, it was is Bush. So, I had I worked with Eric and and, and that team during the conventions, uh, and but the Robertson people weren't weren't very willing to put down the no, the no. weapons, <laughs> and so it led to very contentious. In fact, the Georgia delegation in '88 uh, wasn't decided until it went to the Republican convention. So I remember it was very contentious. It was played out on the floor of the convention in New Orleans. Um, Heath, that 1988 state convention down in Albany. Uh, the chairman of the party at the time was John Stuckey. There was right. chaos on the floor on Saturday morning. The Robertson conservatives screaming at the more moderate traditional Republicans. And at one point, Chairman Stuckey was trying so hard. He was banging his gavel so hard that it broke as he hit the block and it flew up into well, they, the they had, uh, they, they had the I was on the credentials committee and they had a fence around us yeah. with guards outside the fence. That's right. And I'm sitting on the end, and I see two guards tackle one of my best friends on the planet, Matt Patton, who's a former state party chairman, trying to get to me. They had him pinned to the ground. I think it was the Albany High School football team. I think that's who we had to secure. You, you, you know what, Bill? We, we, we can't you know, talk about George Bush in, in Georgia without also mentioning the late Senator Paul Coverdale, yeah. who was sort of my political mentor. But he, he went back to George H.W. Bush to the 1970s. Uh, he led uh, then, uh, I guess he, was, he just finished up as CIA director, but um, when George Bush ran for president in 1980 and lost in the primary to Ronald Reagan. And uh, it was actually, uh, Paul Coverdale was very involved in the 88 campaign and, and then got elected to the Senate in 1992, which was interesting because he got elected uh, the same year George Bush got defeated. Yeah. But uh, we were talking about the 88 race here in Georgia and the Pat Robertson people coming in. It, 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 it re they really did assimilate into the party. And I think that really came to bear when Coverdale got elected in 92 because he had a broad-based coalition of Republicans. I think that's right. And I, I was going to also note about the 88 election. This was the last year that a Republican presidential candidate won California and a whole host of other states that we now consider blue or and haven't gone Republican since. So there's a political legacy to right. what George H.W. Bush was able to do. So the, the um, contentiousness among Republicans carried all the way into the Republican National Convention that year in New Orleans because the Robertson folks were still out in full force. And Pat Robertson made an incendiary speech on the floor of the convention that year, which threw a lot of more regular Republicans off. And then President Bush got up, and, and I want to play two excerpts from his acceptance speech at that convention. The first one, this is a speech written by the great Peggy Noonan, who had been Reagan's uh, speechwriter, really knew how to use language in the most beautiful way. And the first represents, I think, the best of what we think about when we think of the real President Bush, even though he was reading uh, Peggy Noonan's words. Let's listen. I say it without boast or bravado. I've fought for my country, I've served, I've built, and I'll go from the hills to the hollows, from the cities to the suburbs, to the loneliest town on the quietest street, to take our message of hope 
and growth for every American, to every American. I will keep America moving forward, always forward, for a better America, for an endless, enduring dream and a thousand points of light. This is my mission, and I will complete it. You know, Rusty, what's interesting to hear those words, again, they're written by a, a speechwriter who knows how to use those words, but they really did reflect what President Bush thought about the country that he served for well, that's, so that's many the, years. That's the art of speechwriting, is to be able to capture the, uh, the voice of the person for whom you're writing, and Peggy Noonan does it as well as anybody, obviously. But that's quintessential George H.W. Bush, those words. They may, she may have put them on the computer screen or the, on the paper, but they came from his heart, and that was the difference. And a, a thousand points of light. I mean, look at what has happened since he, he made that speech. I mean, you now have an organization which is actually headquartered here yeah, uh, yeah. in Atlanta. Michelle Nunn was the first leader of that organization. Well, she she merged her organization, Hands On Network, into point, Points right. of Light. But Points of Light has been giving out a daily point of light since its establishment uh, in the early 90s. Which is fascinating, Heath, because when he first started using that phrase, he was mocked broadly. Right. Uh, what does that mean? What are a thousand points? And as recently as just in the last couple of months. President Trump, unfortunately, has mocked that term thousand points of light as well, and yet it's endured. No, it has. And, and that's the power of the personality and, and, and his character, right, that persevered. A lot of times organizations like that, if you, after you lose a major election like 1992, your investors and other people walk away from it. But George H.W. Bush was so popular amongst everybody who had ever met him that he actually was able to extend that far beyond what anybody else would have been able to do. So there's another soundbite from that speech, which became probably the most famous uh, moment in the speech and would come back to haunt him and perhaps cost him re-election in 92. Let's listen to this. My opponent won't rule out raising taxes, but I will and the Congress will push me to raise taxes and I'll say no, and they'll push and I'll say no, and they'll push again and I'll say to them, Read my lips. No new taxes. Eric, it sounded good in the moment, but faced with a revolt from the Democrats who controlled the Congress at the time, the House, uh, he was forced into a position where he had to trade off what was a small increase in taxes for a commitment to reducing spending. It's interesting that... It hurt him badly. The conservatives in the party, including Newt Gingrich and others, uh, never quite got over the fact that he did go ahead and raise taxes. And yet now when we look back on that, it's been reassessed. And, and, the, and the feeling is that, in fact, he was making a good deal, except Democrats didn't follow through on their promise to cut spending the way that they had promised to do it. Right. Uh, it did balance the budget, but it also... You know, if you're, you're you're in a political environment and politically it was a it was a bad decision, but it was probably the right decision uh, for the country. And, you know, I think that is quintessential George Bush, you know, doing what he thinks is the the right thing to do. And unfortunately, in this case, it likely cost him the election. Yeah, Rusty, it may be one of the most famous lines in politics, in contemporary politics. Yeah, it was. And uh, it created uh, quite a ripple. And in fact, I, you could argue that the failure to keep up with that, uh, that commitment probably cost him th that and Ross Perot. Uh, the 92 re-election, uh, because he lost some of his base when, when he did that. Uh, Newt Gingrich excoriated him uh, from uh, in an op-ed piece, and uh, other people were very upset that he hadn't kept that commitment. But as you find out, governing is a little bit different than campaigning, and sometimes you're forced into decisions that you don't really want to make just to be able to get the greater good. No, that's right. It definitely divided the Republican Party uh, at the time. And uh, I think there are a couple of other factors you always forget. There was a recession that began. And that, you know, that's where uh, our friend James Carville came up with the 
famous phrase, it's the economy, stupid, uh, that probably played the biggest role at all because you already had Ross Perot. You know, would Ross Perot have gotten into the race at that time? But it was, even to say, hearing George W. Bush, 43, talk about that, uh, the right thing to do from a public policy standpoint, but definitely politically, was probably the most costly thing he ever did. And it was, like- it was pretty amazing, too, that, you know, just months prior, he had like a 90% approval rating after the successful Gulf War. And, and then loses the election. Yeah. I want to go back just a little further in his career. I want to go back to 1976. He's director of the CIA, a position that he was somewhat reluctant to take on. Uh, but more surprisingly, directors of the CIA don't usually end up as candidates eventually for president of the United States. And it says a lot about Bush 41 that he was able to navigate through a position that typically doesn't put you in, in line for uh, running for president. But I want to go back to that for a few minutes because it, it involves Jimmy Carter. Uh, Carter, as Democratic candidate for president, asked if he could have national security briefings. And it was the first time that a candidate had, uh, before assuming office had ever asked for that. And uh, they agreed, the White House agreed, and George Bush came to Plains to talk to Jimmy Carter about where things stood in terms of uh, security as involved the CIA. Here's John Meacham talking about that meeting. President Carter told me, actually, I I was in Plains. I went and saw him teach Sunday school. Uh, It was a Sunday. uh, And um, then that afternoon, I went over to interview him for this book. And he said, George Bush was sitting exactly where you're sitting on the couch uh, on their house, at their house. and if I had acceded to his request, he would never have been president because a Carter administration official would not have found his way favor in the Republican Party to uh, to a ticket in 19. Well, there was some foreshadowing that Carter might not keep him on in that job because he had a little conversation with Miss Lillian when he was down there during the campaign. Miss Lillian he? told The New York <laughs> Times that Jimmy was going to get rid of all the Republicans, including Bush. Uh, but he appreciated strong women. Uh, he, Bush, under, Bush understood that. <laughs> I think that's a great little story. Speaking of strong women, uh, as Meacham says, the woman who really had, of course, the most influence on him was Barbara Bush. He met her in, I think, 1945, right around that year, and they fell in love, apparently, just immediately. Years later, here's just a little of Barbara Bush talking about her husband, George. I think he's this wisest, smartest most decent, uh, caring person I know. And I think he's the handsomest thing I ever laid my eyes on. (laughs) Eric, you got to know the Bush family pretty well. Uh, I covered them for a long time, as I said earlier. And uh, Barbara Bush, she could be, she could be a tough, tough, lady, but uh, talking about her husband, she always was a softie. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, she, she, she played a, a, big role in that family, but that was a special relationship between the two of them. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, as a political appointee, we went to Christmas, we went to the White House during Christmas every year. Yeah. My daughter, who's now 30, was four years old. And uh, she uh, she come, would always leave the White House saying, Miss Bush makes the greatest Christmas cookies I have ever eaten. <laughs> and I introduced her son, then the governor of Texas, and told that story. And, and uh, George W. laughed and said, I'm not sure my mother would know which end of a cookie sheet to. <laughs> I have a funny, different recollection of those White House Christmas parties because I was fortunate enough to get invited to the uh, journalist Christmas parties. And that was that he lingered. He stayed downstairs for the most of the evening and seemed to truly love uh, hanging around with the reporters, the journalists who were there. She got out of there right after the <laughs> formal pictures were taken. <laughs> you know, her nickname was Mrs. Frank, right? <laughs> so we have to do that. But no, she, she was not only the most valuable personal asset to him for 73 years, which I think is miraculous. But uh, on top of that, she was a huge political asset to him because of her frankness, because of her sincerity. I mean, my mother-in-law used to quote Barbara Bush all the time, right? And so how often today do you have anybody quoting First Ladies too often? But, I mean, that's how popular she was, uh, particularly with female voters. So um, in about five minutes, Johnny Isaacson is going to be joining us, and we probably should get to a break before he does. But I want to share a couple other quick stories with you. Um, The 92 campaign— 
became a really difficult march for Bush. He uh, had lost a lot of his popularity because of the tax increase. He wasn't the South wasn't as solidly behind him. Eric Ross Perot had come into the picture and was taking away some of those votes. In in the spring of that year, ninety two, Bill Clinton, on his way to the Democratic National Convention, had come to Atlanta at my invitation to do a town meeting uh, as governor and the and the presumptive nominee at Channel Two WSB TV in Atlanta. It was a big deal to have the governor. And I was after the Bush people for months after that saying, you've got to do the same thing. And remarkably, in October of that year, when they really felt they were in trouble, I assume, Eric, they did bring President Bush to the studios of Channel 2. And he did an hour, uh, ask George Bush with, um, with people that we'd put together who said they were undecided voters. It was a pretty remarkable uh, event, Eric. Yeah, I, I do you remember it. I, I do. I do remember it at the time, though. I was uh, heavily involved in Paul Coverdale's Senate race, ah. so I wasn't working on the Bush campaign at the time. But we were working, you know, closely together. All right, um, let's do this. Let's get, is uh, Johnny with us? Great. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll be joined by Senator Johnny Isaacson. We're doing a tribute to George H. W. Bush. This is Political Rewind. Think about all the time you've spent with GPB during 2018 and what these moments mean to you. As you support the organizations that matter to you during this season of giving, I hope you'll include GPB. Before the year comes to a close, do your part to keep GPB strong in the year ahead. Go to gpb.org and click Donate to make your tax-deductible year-end gift or call 800-222-4788. From all of us at GPB, thank you for your support and happy holidays. Welcome back to Political Rewind. We're talking about George H.W. Bush in the studio with us. Uh, Rusty Paul, the mayor of Sandy Springs, currently but former chairman of the Republican Party of Georgia and a member, a sub-cabinet uh, member of the Bush administration when he worked for Jack Kemp at uh, Housing and Urban Development. Eric Tannenblatt is here, as is Heath Garrett. And now joining us by phone from Washington, Senator Johnny Isaacson. Uh, Senator, thanks so much for taking a little time to be with us this afternoon. Uh, it's a real pleasure to talk about one of the truly great servants of the people, George yeah. Trevor Walker Bush. Well, um, I imagine the mood in Washington today for, for one of the, maybe the few days in recent memory, there is a bipartisan sense of loss up there. Let me just give you an example of that. Uh, I just got off the phone with John Tester, the Democratic senator from Montana, who had called me about a deal we're working on to try and finish by the end of the year. And the first things out of his mouth was, I came on to the back today anyway, even though we're not in session, because I wanted to be to see if there's anything we can do to work together and make a day that George Bush passed away, a day we can pass something together. So that's the kind of influence George Bush has on people. They want to accomplish things. They want to do it in a bipartisan fashion. That's, that's what George Bush was. And that's what we're all trying to reflect on today. You um, were, uh, when you were running for governor in 1990, right. uh, you had uh, George H.W. Bush, uh, was uh, what he stood by you. He came to the state and uh, worked on your behalf. Uh, what do you recall of those days with him? I recall every single minute of that day. I went to San, uh, San uh, Florida and St. Augustine, and the maiden flight of the newest Air Force One at that time, which is the one that they just retired, was that day, and I flew on the maiden flight with George Herbert Walker Bush to Atlanta, and we had a fundraiser at the Waverly Hotel and raised three-quarters of a million dollars for the uh, Isaacson campaign for governor, and I've never forgotten how much I appreciate a president of the United States giving of his time to come and help support me trying to win a governor's race at a critical time for our state, but also a critical time for the Republican Party to try and win a statewide race anywhere in the South. So he was that type of unselfish person that did so. He loved government, he loved the process, and he loved people. You, uh, I, just to make sure our listeners understand what you're telling, he had been in Florida earlier in the day supporting another candidate for office down there, and so that's why you were down there meeting up with him to be able to fly back here on Air Force One with that's him. That's exactly right. Um, so what are your best recollections of the kind of person he was, Senator? 
he's the most caring public official I've ever known. He, he cared about people. He cared about the results of actions of people. He cared about his country very deeply. I mean, the, the stories from his going down at sea when he was a young airman for the United States in World War II, his stories about the things he did for different diseases and challenges that we tried to overcome, Just all those stories are just reflective of what George Herbert Walker Bush was and was until the very day he passed away yesterday. I, I, I tell you what I do, Bill. I remember one night I came down to WSB and you and I did a show. Yeah. And uh, George Herbert Walker Bush was president of the United States, and he uh, made a speech about the pending problems he was seeing in the Middle East, particularly with regard to Saddam Hussein in Iraq. And then he talked about there's going to be a new world order. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. Of course, we all remember the new world order, which was another one of those phrases that he probably regretted later <laughs> having used. But go ahead. Yeah, next to no new taxes. That was the other right. one. <laughs> if he could take two out of his campaign, those would be the two he'd take out. Right. But anyway, you and I were looking at each other, and he, he said uh, something about the new world order, and you're panel lit up with call-ins. <laughs> my home phone lit up with call-ins. My wife started trying to find me. I thought I'd been in a wreck or something. And I got home, and he just that phrase just kind of piked all the real right conservatives for fear of some takeover yeah. by the trilateral commission. Well, that, that, that's exactly, Rusty, that's exactly the point, yeah. is that when we know that George Bush, what he meant by that was, you know, a new era of spirit of cooperation and, you know, we'll work together, but there were those conspiracy oh, theories yeah. that, that was the there. That was the heyday of the trilateral commission, and, uh, you know, there were, there were boogeymen behind every tree trying to take control of the United States, and so that just played right in to all the black helicopter people that we talk about. That's right. <laughs> you know what's interesting, um, Senator? Uh, I just was, because your office was so uh, kind of forward to me, a transcript of the speech he gave at the fundraising event that uh, uh, he held for you here during the 90 campaign. He made fun of himself. This was a great thing about George H.W. W. Bush, and for that matter, for his son. They knew how to, they had great senses of humor, which a lot of people don't realize, and they knew how to laugh at themselves. And I, in the transcript, Senator, uh, he makes reference to the fact that, of course, two years earlier, the Democratic National Convention had been here, and Ann Richards, then governor of Texas, Democratic governor, had made her speech with kind of withering uh, jokes about George H.W., including poor George, he was born with a silver foot in his mouth. And in the speech he gave at your event, he he referred to that and he said, the silver foot in my mouth has melted and everything's okay now. <laughs> <laughs> so, that was vintage George Bush. Yeah, and, and as a matter of fact, I want to play you another quick example of George H.W. Bush's sense of humor. When he wanted to be firm about something, he left no doubt how he felt. I do not like broccoli. And I haven't liked it since I was a little kid. And my mother made me eat it. And I'm president of the United States. And I'm not going to eat any more broccoli. Senator, I hope there was no broccoli on that uh, fundraising dinner plate. No, there was not, I guarantee you. <laughs> um, you had actually visited with, I think, well before the 90 gubernatorial race, there was a moment earlier in your uh, career where you would, I think you and your wife, Diane, had actually been invited to the Oval Office to talk with him about what your political future was going to be. Is that right? Well, you're exactly right. I, I had expressed an interest and uh, uh, maybe running for governor of Georgia in 1990 and the Republican Party and a lot of the Republicans in Georgia thought that was a good idea. Not everybody did. Obviously, I didn't win, but a lot of them thought it was a good idea. And so President Bush invited me to come to Washington, and Diane and I flew up to the White House. We flew to, the, to Reagan Airport and then went to the White House and uh, had tea with the president, talked about uh, local government and state government, because I'd been in state government for 18 years at that time. And he talked about what he wanted to do to let me know he'd be behind me any way he could, and he knew fundraising was difficult and things like that. He said, well, you'll work hard for America. I'll work hard for you. And he did and never abandoned that promise that he made to me. And uh, my wife just loves him. He's, and I loves Barbara, too. Because, in fact, I'll tell you, Barbara, can I tell, tell a Barbara story real Absolutely. quick? Absolutely. Let me tell you something. She's the real thing. She is Barbara Bush is the real thing. We, She came in and did a fundraiser for me, and we landed at the uh, business terminal at Hartsfield Airport in the small Air Force One, the little uh, uh, small G5 or G, well, what, G5, G2, I guess. 
and she landed, and there was a big press gaggle because it was the day that Neil uh, Bush was indicted for the Silverado Savings Loan deal. You remember that deal? Yeah. So she gets out of the Air Force, uh, little Air Force One, and comes over to me in the bank of, of uh, microphones. My wife stands behind us. She starts to give a little press conference and says, I'm here in Atlanta today to tell you I want you to vote for my your candidate for the governor of Georgia, Johnny Isaacson. He's a good man. He ought to be there. And the press immediately, as you know the good press will do, said, what about your son being indicted today for the Silverado, Sa- Silverado Savings fiasco? <laughs> and she looked at him and said, well, everybody's son's done something. My son's done a lot of good things, and I'm going to go home and call him and talk to him about it. And she turned around <laughs> and she walked away. And everybody looked at each other like, what? <laughs> and so we, we got in the, the limo. My wife sat as far away from Ms. Bush as she could, <laughs> plastered to the door on the other side. She was frightened out of her mind. I sat in the jump seat and tried to make conversation. And Ms. Bush, recognizing my wife was nervous being in the, with the First Lady of the United States, patted the seat between her and said, darling, come over here. I just hate the press, don't you? <laughs> See, Eric, and, that, uh, go ahead, she, It just broke the ice, and she, Diane, slid over and sat by her, and she talked to us about our kids and her kids, and we just had a great time. Well, yes, but uh, thank you, Senator, because I just mentioned this, Eric. I, Barbara Bush was a steely human being. I mean, she has that grandmotherly image, but you knew to stay out of her way in situations a- like abs- that. Well, absolutely. I left out one of the adjectives she used in that because I didn't want to tarnish the image. <laughs> Johnny, if I could just shift gears just a second, you know, one of the things President Bush uh, really stood for was national service. He lived his life that way and, you know, started uh, Points of Light. And I know you've been a big supporter of Points of Light and AmeriCorps. And I just hope that uh, his legacy will live on and people will continue to serve the country uh, as he so uh, ably advocated for. Well, George Bush set the standard for doing what's right. Uh, when he was defeated by Bill Clinton, he joined with Bill Clinton to raise money for two disasters shortly after his presidency. He had, had no reason to have to do that. He did it out of the kindness of his heart. Didn't do it for any credit or anything else. He'd already been president of the United States, but helped a lot of people in their life. He's done a lot of re- rewarding things for river blindness and helped Jimmy Carter with the river blindness project in Africa. They're just I could go on and on and on, but he's just a wonderful human being who, who never lacks for the desire to want to help somebody. So how do all of you reflect upon the... It, it's interesting that it was during his first term that we've already mentioned the fact that Gingrich and a number of the Republicans, so the conservatives, had started to pull themselves away from the more moderate members of the Republican Party. They were more aggressive in their messaging. They had other ideas. Um, how, I guess the question becomes, and I'd love to hear each of you with a little uh, opportunity on this, how has the Republican Party changed since George H.W. Bush was president of the United States? Well, Con- well, well Condor Gentler's gone away. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. At the risk of uh, saying this, I'm going to say it anyway because it, I, it's true. Uh, I get a lot of questions and have for years from people aspiring to run as Republicans for office. And because we've been a minority party for a long time, and now they're in the majority, in the majority, people want to know what's it like, what I need to know, what I need to do. And I've done everything I can to give them copies of speeches, show them some videos I've got of President Bush handling difficult situations, which he did so well, and also show the compassion that is so necessary in being a president of the United States or the CEO of any operation. And I, I try, I tell my friends in the party, I say, I know Moderate's a bad word, but moderation is a good thing. It's one of the three things on our uh, arch that represents our state, wisdom, virtue, and, and uh, moderation. Justice, Williams, William Justice in moderation. More moderation would have helped us to move up faster as a party, and I think more moderation and a better place moderation now will allow us to keep our position in, in, as a party in this state. So you cannot, it cannot always, it's not a my way or the highway world, and it's not a my way or the highway country, and politics is not by any stretch a my way or the highway business. It's a, it's a sharing, caring business where at times compassion is the most important thing, and at times being tough is important. you got to know which one's right and when. So George Bush was the kind of man I aspire to hopefully one day be referred to in the same sentence as my principles and the things I believe in, I would tell anybody who aspires to going running for public office, if you followed his life and his career and looked at the way he handled himself and handled adversity in difficult situations, you'd see the right way to do it, not the wrong way to do it. Well, and, and having worked for Johnny Isaacson now for the last uh, 27, 28 years, Johnny, we won't talk about how long that's been. 
uh, I see you know, there are a lot of great characteristics that we talk about in George W. Bush, H.W. Bush that people talk about in Johnny Isaacs, and I've seen him live that out, not just talk about it here today. Um, and Johnny and I find it harder and harder, and I know Eric does and Rusty, to find good young people to want to run because it's not a kinder, gentler uh, Republican Party or party politics on both sides, right? Uh, George right. W. Bush ran as a compassionate conservative. <clears throat> Today, everybody would say, wow, you know, wh- where have we all come? But Johnny's exactly right. I think coming on the heels of this last election, which was so divisive, both at the state level and at the national level, there are so many lessons to be learned from not only George H.W. Bush, the man, but also his politics, right? And he was he was a conservative. At the end of the day, at his core, he was a fiscal conservative. He was hawkish on national security and defense. Uh, he was for lower regulation, uh, but he was for balanced budgets, right, at the end of the day. Uh, but he had a moderate personality, and he was able to appeal to people in the middle. So, Bill, to answer your question, I think what's happened to both parties is most of that classical moderation is gone right now. And if Republicans don't find some classical moderation in the suburbs of America, not just the suburbs of Atlanta, but the suburbs of America, and, and find uh, folks like George Herbert Walker Bush and you know, tall truth, Johnny Isaacson and others, we're going to continue to get wiped out politically in the suburbs. So I think this is a seminal moment, not just for honoring him, but for the party to take a look at how do we recruit and retain and train candidates like that for the right districts across America. I I completely agree. And hopefully the last 72 hours in the next week that we're all celebrating the life of George H.W. Bush, it will have some impact on people. Well, let me tell you what I, I, what, stands out for me about Bush was that how nuance nuance is a, is a lost art in 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 American politics uh, and, and and I'm not referring to any one person in particular it's just gone when when the president when president Reagan was shot he he was gone and he was trying to get back to the white house as fast as possible and his staff said look we'll just land on on the lawn of the white house and he said no only the president of the united states lands on the lawn of the White House. Then later, when he was president and the Berlin Wall fell and his staff were saying, you need to go to Germany and be part of this. He said, nope, I am not going over there. Gorbachev needs the space. And that, you know, that nuance really made a huge difference uh, in in very key moments in, in world history. Yeah. Yeah. Se- Senator and everybody, I want to read you something very quickly that uh, Tom Faust uh, just sent me while we were having the conversation about what's going the atmosphere in Washington today as opposed to back then. CNN uh, just moved this story. George H.W. Bush can perform one last posthumous service to his country this week by orchestrating a rare moment of unity and short-term truce in the raucous politics swirling around the crisis-stricken Trump presidency. And what he goes on to point out is that H.W. Uh, made it clear before dying that he wanted all of the living presidents of the United States to be at his funeral, and that included Donald Trump. And, Senator, as we know, President Trump has responded to the death of George H.W. Bush uh, with a sense of moderation and respect that I think a lot of Americans have come to wonder if he is able to show. In this case, he has. Well, there's no question about it. And, and you know, in, in life, respect begs respect. George H.W. Bush had the respect of everyone. And I think when President Trump accepted that instantly, and I noticed the same thing that you did, Bill, he realized that George Bush was the president, the people's president, the president that everybody worshipped. And he wanted to be there just like everybody else was. I think that was a great tribute to the Bush presidency and the Bush family and a great Tribute to George H.W. Bush. Uh, Senator, I really appreciate your spending some uh, time uh, with us today. Thank you. Uh, I hope the week goes well for you in Washington and that the spirit of bipartisanship and cooperation extends for, oh, another 48 hours or so. We're going to work on it, Bill, I promise. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Senator. Thanks. Let's, uh, let's take another break. We'll come back. We've got a few minutes left in the show to finish our conversation about the 41st president of the United States. 
On Fresh Air, you'll hear from people who really make you think, like astrophysicist Brian Greene explaining the scientific theory that our universe is just one of many. And the image that I like to have in mind is, imagine that our universe is like one slice of bread in a much grander cosmic loaf, with the other slices of bread being other universes. No subject is too big for Fresh Air. Join us. It's this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. There are many ways to be a leader. Some run big companies. Some serve on the school board or volunteer for causes they care about. Most leaders are regular people who want to make a difference. They do it by supporting what matters to them. I'm Tamara Keith. When you give to public radio, you're supporting reliable journalism. So please, follow your heart and be a leader. Make a year-end gift now. Go to gpb.org and click Donate or call 800-222-4788. We are back on Political Rewind. Heath Garrett, Eric Tannenblatt, Rusty Paul are in the studio with me uh, talking about the legacy of George H.W. Bush, who died on Saturday. You've already heard that uh, he will be lying in state in the U.S. Capitol. I think starting tonight Mm -hmm. through Wednesday morning, there will be a service at the National Cathedral on Wednesday. And then, Eric, he goes back home to Houston for another service on Thursday. Have I got that correct? That's right. And then he'll be buried uh, alongside Barbara at Texas A&M at his library. Um, I want to mention, you've heard a couple of very brief excerpts from the interview that I did with John uh, Meacham back when his uh, biography of President Bush was published two years ago. On Friday of this week, because we're spending so much time, uh, all of us in this country, commemorating the life and legacy of President Bush, we're going to play that entire interview with John on Political Rewind. There are moments in it, nothing nothing to do with me. John is eloquent and moving in the way he talks about George H.W. Bush. And one of the most heartbreaking sections of our conversation is uh, Meacham talking about uh, what happened to the Bush family when their daughter Robin died of leukemia at age three. So Friday on Political Rewind, you uh, I don't think you're going to want to miss hearing John talk about the life and legacy of George H.W. Uh, Bush. So, all right, Rusty, 1992, where were you in the, during the 92 campaign? Uh, I was doing my job at HUD, doing everything I could to avoid uh, violating the Hatch Act. <laughs> <laughs> He's saying he was trying not to be out campaigning <laughs> on government time. And Eric, I was working to get the uh, to get Paul Coverdale elected to the United States Senate, which was a, a, a fascinating election, uh, because as you you can tell it better than I can. But here's the '92 presidential election: uh, Bush loses to President Clinton. He he and and he, he uh, loses Georgia. To President Clinton, which was a real blow, but Coverdale and and uh, White Fowler, the the sitting senator at the time, ended up in a runoff that year. Right, they ended up in a runoff, and even though uh, President Bush lost the election, and I would say he lost Georgia because of Ross Perot, because Republican uh, candidates have won the state. Barbara Bush, a week later, came to Georgia for Paul Coverdale. Yep. Uh, and Paul Coverdale ultimately won that election. Coverdale won, many people think, because Republicans in the state were so upset and angry by the fact that Bush had lost to Clinton, uh, turned out in big numbers to give their votes to Coverdale. Right, and that was one of the very—it may even been the first of the runoffs, the post-November runoffs that we've had in, in the state of Georgia. So we were kind of in unknown territory at that time. I came down uh, with uh, Secretary Kemp, uh, the Hatch Act no longer applying, uh, and, uh, and helped campaign for uh, Senator Coverdale in that, uh, in that runoff. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it, it was difficult. It was a very difficult time for all of us. I mean, when you have a change of administration, you lose an election like that. It, doesn't ju- it affects you as the candidate. But there's so many people who are dependent upon you. And I got one of the nicest notes one of the things that we haven't talked about are the notes that George oh, yeah. Bush sent to everybody. I still have in my file, uh, it's, it's framed, the note he sent me for thanking me for my service in his administration. Yeah. I, I want to play it a little sound for you all. On, on Election Eve that year, I think the election was November 2nd or 3rd in 1992. 
On election eve, it was pretty clear the polling suggested that that President Bush, unfortunately, was going to lose to Clinton. Georgia was still a little bit up in the air. We weren't sure. I had gone home at about 7.30 election eve, and I got a call from my assignment desk saying, can you get back here right away? The White House is looking for you. And I said, what do you mean? I went And I went back uh, through a series of interesting interactions I won't describe to you. I was patched onto a phone call with Air Force One. And I was told that President Bush wanted to do one last interview with me uh, before the election. Now, I have never to this day understood. We... I do feel like, for whatever reason, Bush and I clicked. He had come to do this October town meeting with me. And so on the night before the election, strictly as a one-off, he got on the telephone with me, and we recorded one last conversation. And I want to play just a little bit of it for you. It, what's interesting about it is that the only thing that's preserved is his end of the call. And so I've taken my, you know, what would have been my voice out. And we're just going to play together about 30 seconds of what happened on that election eve phone call. Hello, Bill. How are you? Well, here we are for the last political rally for myself that we'll ever attend. And it's very exciting. Never a candidate again for anything after tonight. It's a great feeling. We're upbeat. We had a marvelous tour across five states, and here we are in the sixth. And so we're really, really fired up. And we really honestly believe we're going to do and do it. And I believe we're going to win Georgia. Georgia's become a battleground. And uh, this is my last, last interview before the election, and I'm very pleased it's with you. Now, here's the truth about that. That was how kind and decent a human being he was. I, to say that he was glad it was me that he was inter being interviewed by, I think he would have said that about a lot of people because he made everyone feel, Eric, special. Absolutely. I, you know, I've been reflecting a lot on all these personal stories that, and experiences. Um, and, you know, I, I think about my, my last visit to Kenny Bunkport where I actually— uh, had a chance to talk to him, and uh, he he a he asked me about uh, Georgia and the political scene in Georgia, and even started asking me about Maynard Jackson. Wow. So I mean, that's how knowledgeable he was and keeping up on on what's happening in politics. Well, um, he lost Georgia that year by Tom Faust just pointed out by like fifteen thousand votes. He almost won it, and of course, four years later, Georgia. Uh, flipped again and voted against uh, Bill Clinton in 1996. George H.W. Bush, uh, a remarkable leader. And I'm thrilled, Rusty, that as we assess him, look, there were, there were many things, and I know people who follow this show are going to say, why didn't you talk about all the negative things about President Bush? There were many. There's no question about that. But what we're talking about now is celebrating a remarkable figure uh, in uh, in our in our lives. Uh, uh, Bill, uh, there's no question that that President Bush was a very competitive and ambitious person, but his ambition never got ahead of his patriotism. He, he, he had a true life of service. I mean, look at all the jobs he had through through the years. Uh, it's been said that no one was more prepared to be president than he was. But just the life of service, you can agree or disagree with their politics or their, or, or their policies, but you have to give tribute to somebody who spent their life trying to make this country better. You get 20 seconds on that, Heath. No, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, Johnny Isaacs has an old phrase called, we have friends and future friends. And George Herbert Walker Bush had lived and exemplified that and um, it made, made it for a better nation because of him. That's it for our show today. Uh, Heath Garrett, Eric Tannenblatt, and Rusty Paul, thank you so much for being here to talk about George Herbert Walker Bush. Um, we're just about out of time for today's show. We will be back tomorrow at 2 o'clock uh, to talk about Georgia politics. And uh, remember, Friday, John Meacham, our whole interview with him on Political Rewind. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. 
and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.